All right. I want to start my little part here tonight by reading you a letter. And uh, just want to remind you that this is a real letter that was written from one person to another. It goes like this. <clears throat> I, Paul, am a prisoner for the sake of Christ here with my brother Timothy. I write this letter to you, Philemon, my good friend and companion in this work, also to our sister, Aphia, to Archippus, a real trooper, and to the church that meets in your house. God's best to you, Christ's blessings on you. Every time your name comes up in my prayers, I say, oh, thank you, God. I keep hearing of the love and faith you have for the master Jesus, which brims over to other believers. And I keep praying that this faith we hold in common keeps showing up in the good things we do, and that people recognize Christ in all of it. Friend, you have no idea how good your love makes me feel, doubly so when I see your hospitality to fellow believers. In line with all this, I have a favor to ask of you. As Christ's ambassador and now a prisoner for him, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought it necessary, but I'd rather make it a personal request. While here in jail, I've fathered a child, so to speak, and here he is, hand-carrying this letter Onesimus. He was useless to you before. Now he's useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you, but it feels like I'm cutting off my right arm doing so. I wanted in the worst way to keep him here as your stand-in to help while I'm in jail for the message. But I didn't want to do anything behind your back, make you do a good deed that you hadn't willingly agreed to. Maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now for good, and no mere slave this time, but a true Christian brother. That's what he was to me. He'll be even more than that to you. So if you still consider me a comrade in arms, welcome him back as you would me. If he damaged anything or owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. This is my personal signature, Paul, and I stand behind it. I don't need to remind you, do I, that you owe your very life to me. Do me this big favor, friend. You'll be doing it for Christ, but it will also do my heart good. I know you well enough to know you will. You'll probably go far beyond what I've written. And by the way, get a room ready for me because of your prayers. I fully expect to be your guest again. Epaphras, my cellmate in the cause of Christ, says hello. Also, my co-workers, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke. All the best to you from the Master, Jesus Christ. Uh, back in 2004, Amy and Aiden and I uh, lived in Pennsylvania. It's not where any of us are from. That's where we'd been for three and a half years, and Aiden was born there. And um, I had known Ross in college, and we weren't close friends, but we were sort of nominal friends and had a lot of friends in common. And somehow during our years in Pennsylvania, he and I reconnected by email. And, and uh, that ultimately led to us moving back here to community church, uh, to, to College Station and being a part of community church. And then uh, eventually to me being a pastor here. So in our early days of living in the same place again, uh, one of the 
funny things that happened with me and Ross was we knew all these people in common. And uh, I, we were young and silly back then, um, not mature and wise like we are now. Uh, but uh, so we had strong opinions about certain people. And on several different occasions, we ran into some, some situation where one of us would be telling a story about someone who had either hurt us or done something that we thought was really stupid or offensive or that we just didn't agree with. Um, and we weren't always the, the gentlest people in the world in, in telling those stories or expressing our opinion of those. And, and sometimes our, our, we would have that person in common and our views of them would overlap and we would go, yeah, what an idiot, right? Um, and certainly we were right about that when that would happen. Um, and then there were other occasions, it happened probably four different times, where one of us would tell that story and the other would go, hey, I know that guy. He's a friend of mine. Um, he's a pretty good guy. You had a weird experience there, or maybe you were the jerk in the room, and we got to figure out now how to talk about that. Uh, but uh, it was really healthy for us, not necessarily uh, a manifestation of something healthy in us, that we were talking about people that way or seeing people in the way that we were seeing them, but we ran into these challenges where my view of someone had to be altered because someone else that I trusted and that I liked had a different view of them and had a different experience for them. And something, I think two things happened in that. One, there's just that natural sort of, oh, Ross commends this person to me, so despite my uh, harsh opinion, I might need to rethink that. And also, hopefully, there was some of the spirit living in both of us despite our immaturity and harshness. And that would be compelled to go, oh, because of Jesus, I need to change the way that I'm seeing or thinking or talking about this person. And a lot of us have had some sort of experience like that. And in a sense, that's what's happening here in Paul's letter to Philemon. That's the whole book, by the way. If you're not really familiar with the book of Philemon in the New Testament, that's it. There's no chapters. It's just those uh, verses, 25 verses that we just read. It's a short letter from Paul, but a really powerful and significant letter. So I want to I talk through what happens in this letter and talk about uh, what I think this has to say to us as we transition here uh, from talking for several weeks about worship and then kind of culminating that, week, that last week with really spending some extended, extended time together worshiping and moving into talking about mission. We, at the member meeting, and you've heard it here probably once or twice, we have sort of tried to get in a really clear statement who we're trying to be, who we think we're supposed to be as a people at Community Church, and that is that we're a people who are following Jesus in biblical community for the redemption of the world. And so I think the components of that are people who worship, who see God for who he is and worship him, and people who are on mission and people who are living in true community. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about the mission part of that. In this letter to Philemon, and I'll have parts of it back up on the screen here in a minute as I talk about it more, uh, but before I, before I start talking through what Paul does here in this letter, I want to talk about sort of the elephant in the room is that we're dealing with slavery here. And Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, who is a slave, who was a slave of Philemon's, and he ran away. He 
wasn't freed by any emancipation proclamation. He wasn't freed by Philemon. He ran away, and Paul gives us reason to believe later in the letter that he maybe tore some stuff up on his way out the door, as you might be inclined to do if you're a slave, suddenly saying, I'm out of here. Um, and so that's essentially the relationship that Philemon and Onesimus have. And what I want to ask you before we get into that is to not get too hung up on this concept of slavery. Uh, and at the very least, don't compare it too closely to our context for slavery in, in our sort of country's history or when you hear conversations about modern-day slavery. It doesn't, that's not me saying what was happening there was okay or that it didn't matter, um, that it wasn't oppressive in some way or in need of the cross. Clearly, it was in need of the correction of the cross as that's really a big part of what Paul's doing here in the letter. But if you're focused, if you, if you get too hung up on, wait, this guy was a slave, why isn't Paul just all guns blazing saying, what's wrong with you owning slaves? Uh, you're going to get distracted from what Paul's actually doing here. Because I think at least part of the answer to why Paul wasn't doing that was that we weren't dealing with exactly the same kind of slavery, um, the kind of harsh, dehumanizing phenomenon that... Uh, we think of because of our nation's history with slavery. And bear in mind that in lots of other places, Paul deals very clearly with violence and how we treat other people and those kinds of things. So if it was that kind of slavery, Paul would address it head on, I think. Um, but he is addressing something significant that needs to change because of the cross in the relationship between these two men. And it goes something like this. Paul's in prison. We know that from what he writes. We know it from historical context, but we clearly know it from what he writes in the letter. And from prison, he writes this letter to his friend Philemon, and he stresses two things early on in the letter. He, first of all, uh, says, when I pray for you, I'm thankful. I say, oh, thank you, God. This is the message, by the way. I love the way that uh, it's written, and I wanted to read it to you as a letter, and it flows a little more in our sort of letter-writing language in the message. More than welcome to look at any of the other translations. This is pretty... I, I, I read two different translations side by side with this, and it's uh, pretty consistent. But in this, in this way of it being written, he says, every time I pray for you, when you come to my mind... I just say, thank you, God, for Philemon. And uh, I'm thankful for his friendship. Um, and he also says, you have no idea how good your love makes me feel, doubly so when I see your hospitality to fellow believers. So he's thankful for Philemon's friendship in general, and specifically he's thankful that Philemon is hospitable, that he's somebody who's kind, who receives and welcomes other people. Uh, and then the second thing that he emphasizes early in the letter is the role of Jesus in their friendship and in their lives. He says, I keep hearing of the love and faith you have for the master Jesus, which brims over to other believers. He's not writing to someone who, who is a nominal Christian, but whose life isn't being changed, who isn't expressing the love of God in his life. He's saying, I keep hearing, I'm in prison, and I'm hearing about the fact that uh, your faith is causing the love of Jesus to come out in really tangible ways. And he says, I keep praying that this faith that you and I, Philemon, you and I hold in common keeps showing up in the good things we do and that people recognize Christ in all of us. So I'm asking in my own life and in your life, Philemon, I'm asking that God keeps growing us. That what's true because of our faith, the way that we've been changed by Jesus, 
keeps working itself out in the way that we live. And because of that, people see Jesus. And they see who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So that's the early emphasis in her letter. Then, in his letter, then we get the purpose, uh, starting in verses eight and nine, we get sort of the core purpose of the letter. And as he starts it, he repeats both of those appeals. He says, in line with all of this, because of our friendship and because of our common faith, I'm going to ask you a favor, like I would ask a friend. And then he says, as Christ's ambassador and now a prisoner for him, appealing again to their common faith, I wouldn't hesitate to command this if I thought I had to, but I'd rather make it a personal request. So inherent in that is his, uh, he's communicating that this is important enough that if I felt like I had to tell you to do it for it to happen, I wouldn't hesitate to do that. And there's some assumption of seniority here that Paul has sort of fathered Philemon in the faith and that he has kind of that relationship where he could say, hey, listen, this is who Jesus is. This is how it should change the way that you're living. Do it. Um, he says, this is clear enough that I could do that, but I don't think it's necessary because I think you're going to respond to my appeal um, as a personal request. And then he explains all this starting in verse 10. He says, while I'm in jail, while I was in jail, I met Onesimus, who it just tur- happens, uh, turns out, used to be your slave and isn't anymore because he escaped. And I led him to faith in Christ, and I became sort of a spiritual father to him. I've been um, discipling him, so to speak, and I love him like my own child. There's no, there's no sort of middle ground in the way that Paul writes about his feelings for Onesimus. He, uh, he says, he's like my kid, and I'd really love to keep him here with me, but I'm going to send him back to you, even though that costs me something. And you have to think that having someone nearby who uh, you have this kind of relationship with and this kind of confidence in is even more significant when you're locked up, right? Um, And so it's a big deal that he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. You also bear in mind throughout this whole thing uh, that that, that would merit a sermon in and of itself that Onesimus has really bought in, right? That he's willing, at Paul's request, uh, to say, hey, I wrote that guy uh, who used to be your master a letter. I'd like you to take it back to him. That's a, this is a real, uh, sig- signifies something really important that Onesimus is willing to do this. Um, but what he says to Philemon here is, uh, instead of just keeping Onesimus and sending you a letter and explaining He's a believer. He's my child in the faith. You shouldn't have slaves anyway, by the way. I'm keeping him here with me. Hope you're cool with that. Instead of doing that, or instead of instructing him like he said he could do, uh, he doesn't want Philemon to have any reason to accuse Paul of undermining him or of doing things the wrong way. Um, He wants Philemon to have the, the chance, the freedom to do things the right way. And I think what's really bubbling underneath this is Paul saying to Philemon, as he said, he prays happens in both of their lives. I want the cross to continue to work itself out in you in the way that you live. And this is a great opportunity for that. Um, I want you to continue to see how the cross has changed everything and see that yourself instead of me just forcing it upon you. And then he asks what he's writing Philemon to ask. He says, if you still consider me 
a co-laborer in the gospel. And, you know, we have to assume that the answer to that is going to be yes. He's already described that Philemon is serious about the gospel and is changing the way that he lives. And so the only chance for the answer to that would be no is for some reason for Philemon to look at Paul and go, I think Paul's a little off course here. And by the way, Paul's in prison for the gospel. So good luck to saying no to this if you still consider me a comrade in arms. But he says, if you still consider me a co-laborer in the gospel, welcome him back. Um, And this is a big, relatively speaking and culturally speaking at this time. It's a pretty significant request. Uh, And it's even more significant because of the kind of layers to what Paul is asking. He's not saying, welcome him back, not as a slave, um, but uh, he's not just saying any one of these things. He's he's, He's saying all of these things. Welcome him back. Not as a slave, but as a brother. Um, And don't punish him for running away. Don't hold that against him. Uh, Don't welcome him back as a brother, but as a brother you're kind of suspect of. Welcome him back fully um, as your brother. And then Paul goes really all the way with this ask and says, welcome him back as you would welcome me. So no conditions, no buts. No, like, side eye looking at Onesimus, and I'm, I'm welcoming you back because Paul asked me to. And No, welcome him back as you would receive me. On top of that, Paul says, if he, damages, uh, if he damaged or owes you anything, chalk it up to my account. So this is continuing to go deeper. Um, receive him not as a slave, as a brother. Welcome as, as you would welcome me. If there's something that uh, in his running away or in his time with you that he owes you, that's my debt now. I will take care of that. Um, and, and then Paul puts his full name, his full reputation behind this. He says, I'm signing this. And his name is there, you know, signed on the letter. Um, and then uh, because he's human and there are all kinds of little persuasive uh, Um, details in what Paul does here, but he says, you know, um, you you probably remember that you owe me my life. Oh, owe me your life. You remember that? And we don't have a lot of detail about what that means. We don't know if Paul somehow physically saved Philemon's life or if this is a spiritual reference to Paul led him to Christ and out of his former way of living. Uh, But though he is being gentle and inviting Philemon to sort of come into this conviction on his own, He's asking Philemon a favor, and he's reminding him, you kind of owe me one. And I, th- this, uh, I don't know how serious this is or if this is kind of a joke. Um, I tend to read it as a joke, but that's because I haven't saved a lot of people's lives. Um, and the closest I've ever come to this is kind of a joke. With the first time that Brandon and Daniel Meadows and I went to Haiti, we were riding around with our friend Troy Livesay, and he was driving a vehicle that was a standard vehicle. And there was some kid uh, in the front seat. He was like 21, but you know how some 21-year-olds are adults and some are kids. There was some kid in the front seat that we didn't really know, and the three of us were crammed in the back seat. And Troy saw somebody that he knew that he wanted to talk to, and so he stopped and got out of the car and left the car running. And I, don't, I, I guess we were like, there was a tire was like on a rock or something because it turned out he left the car in neutral and didn't put on the emergency brake. And so... Uh, we're pulled up behind this guy that Troy knew between two cars and the two of them, those two guys are standing between the two cars talking with their backs to us and our vehicle starts rolling toward them. 
And the, the kid in the front seat just goes, ah! And I don't know what Daniel and Brandon, they didn't care about Troy, I don't think. And so I dove out of the back seat into the front seat and put my hand on the brake in the floorboard, you know, and so I'm like half in the, I'm just completely sprawled out. Um, and I like to remind Troy of that, that you remember you owe me your life. Um, he, at the most, he owes me his legs. Um, and probably it would have been like a thunk you know, uh, kind of role. But it's fun for me to have that moment where I dove out of the back seat and put my hand on the brake and the floorboard. So when you read this, I don't think it's like ugly coercion. I think Paul's just kind of going, you know, you, you owe me your life here. But he returns here to the two key foundations for his appeal. Uh, he says, you'll be doing this for Christ, but it'll also do my heart good. It will be an encouragement to me if you'll do this. And then he finishes the letter uh, with uh, what what I like to, I I see in this sort of the four great tools of someone who asks you, someone you you just can't say no to. You know, those are these kinds of people that ask you for something and it's just like, this is the kind of person I can't say no to. Uh, And and those four things that I see here uh, in, in these last several verses are he kind of peeks in to Philemon's soul. He says, I know you're a great guy and devoted to Jesus, so I'm confident you'll do what I'm asking. And then he, uh, he throws in a little flattery. In fact, you're such a good guy that you're probably going to do more than what I ask. I don't, I don't expect you're just going to do the bare minimum. Uh, and then if that's not enough, he throws in, uh, by the way, you're going to see me again. I'm going to actually come uh, to you factor. He says, because of your prayers, I fully expect to be your guest again. You've prayed so much for my freedom, which we know that the church and people like Philemon were doing for Paul, and for me to come back and minister to you again. And I'm confident God's going to hear you, and he's going to let me come and see your forgiveness and your honor of Onesimus. So if there's any hesitation on Philemon's part, there's this reminder that Paul's probably going to come see how this all goes down. And then right there at the end in the last few verses in the last phrase here, all the best to you from the master Jesus Christ. If, if, it didn't, if none of the other tools of persuasion worked, uh, Jesus says hi. Um, there's this little reminder that God is watching how Philemon responds to this, right? So there's a lot that we could say about this, but I want to focus on two key points as we make this transition from talking about worship to talking about who we are as a people on mission with Jesus and for Jesus. And then I'll give just a few thoughts uh, that might help us as we move forward. The first, the first uh, point I want to focus on is, is what we've already talked about, and that is this, that the cross is central to our understanding of worship, of how we relate to and respond to directly in our personal relationship and our corporate relationship and response to God. The cross is at the center of that. We're compelled by the great love that God has shown us in the death of Jesus on the cross to worship, to express his great value and to thank him for it. When we're walking freely and in the joy of the new life we've been given, we, give, we express that in worship pretty easily, most of us. And when we're in the valley of pain or suffering or doubt, worship can be more difficult but 
the call of the cross is to remember that Jesus is joining us in our pain, that this is the kind of God we can still worship even when we deal with pain because it's the kind of God who comes and is with us in the midst of our pain. That, that we even, Paul says, now carry around his death in our bodies. And it becomes that death, that carrying around of pain and suffering becomes this kind of deep, hopeful ache for what's to come and for resurrection. Not only uh, are we delivered from our hurt, the resurrection tells us, but God's gonna redeem it all. That in an eternal way, he's going to work all of this backwards and create a beauty that we can't imagine as we're in the midst of it and something that can't be shaken. And then the second point that I want us to focus on tonight and moving forward is this. Just as the cross defines our posture in facing God, the cross redefines and recreates and causes us to reimagine our posture when facing the world around us, when facing one another in the church, which we'll talk about as we get to community. Um, and it, it redefines the basis for how we understand our purpose on earth, the, the mission that we have in the world around us and in the church. And I think Paul is dealing with both of those points here, both with understanding the worth and the value of Jesus and expressing that to him and understanding how we, the way that we live in the world is changed by the cross. He calls Philemon to this new vision of mission. Uh, to the, to, to, he, he is telling him really clearly in this letter that the ways and the institutions of the world are no longer our guide. This is not what defines how we live, is the way that the world works. You no longer see those in the world who aren't like you in the way that the world does. And this becomes central. This may seem like a small thing because it's about two men and their relationship. But, but Paul, as we'll look at, is doing something much deeper. He is transforming the way that we look at people in the world around us, and that is fundamental to us understanding and sustaining any kind of mission as individuals or in the church. And he also redefines community, which we'll see uh, later on as we move forward. He says uh, a line that has become familiar to us in A Christmas Carol, quite literally, he says to Philemon, the slave is your brother. He changes the way that we understand community, relationships within the church, and the way that we see people in the world around us. He says, receive Onesimus as a brother and then some. So for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the mission part of that uh, and specifically what guides us in being on mission in the church and what we're aiming for, what we're building for, what it's supposed to be about. And then later we'll get to community and kind of bring together some of our conversations going on in comm group with what we're doing here on Sundays. But it's clear here that first of all, Paul is appealing to Jesus and to his work on the cross in redefining the way Philemon and the whole church views the world and people in the world. Uh, so look at these three things and then we'll basically be done with this passage that he does in this passage. First of all, he says this, I write this letter to you, Philemon, my good friend and companion in this work. Then he lists two other specific people by name. And then he says, and to the church that meets in your house, God's best to you, Christ's blessings on you. 
what reads mostly like a personal letter between Paul and Philemon about their mutual friend Onesimus that he has sent with an escaped slave to be read not only to that slave's uh, former master, but he sent it to be read to the whole church. This isn't just a personal letter between Paul and Philemon. It's a letter to Philemon's whole church. Um, Ostensibly, either it's going to be read by Onesimus, who's carrying the letter, or by Philemon himself, who it sounds like is hosting at least, if not leading this church in his home. And Paul addresses all of this to the full church. It's not just about asking Philemon to do something. It's about telling the church something is new, something has changed. This word is not just for one man, it's for the whole church. And then in verses four through seven, we get this phrase, and I keep praying that this faith we hold in common keeps showing up in the good things we do and that people recognize Christ in all of it. He's saying to Philemon, what I'm about to ask of you is how the faith that we hold in common, the faith in the work of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection shows up in the things we do. This is not just, I'd like for this one relationship to be different. I am talking to you, Philemon, and to the whole church and saying, this is what happens when the faith that we have in Jesus, when the cross begins to work itself out in the things that we do, you can see the evidence of who Jesus is and what he's up to. So what I'm asking you here is about that. It's not just about, I like Onesimus, or I don't like slavery. It's about what does the cross do in changing the way that we see and the way that we live in the world. And this thing that I'm asking of you is gonna be part of how people see Jesus in what you do. He will, they will see you receive a slave as your brother. They will see you forgive if he's done something wrong or torn something up. And they will see you tend to his needs and they'll see who Christ is in that. And in that, Paul is saying to us, the gospel is not just about words. It's not just about a message of personal or eternal salvation. It's about altering the way that we see the world and changing what we do in the world. That's how the gospel comes to life and that's how people see who Jesus is. And then the third thing I want us to see finally in this passage, which I think is really the real hammer of the message of this letter, shows up in verse 11 when Paul says, he was useless to you before and now he's useful to both of us. This completely undermines the world's way of seeing value. To the world, a slave is useful. Let's... Shut out ethics, let's shut out spiritual conviction, all of those kinds of things. We've all made a joke at some point about making so-and-so our servant, or if I just had somebody whose job it was to clean my house or to do this thing at work that I don't wanna do, right? We all have that part of us who sees the usefulness of somebody who exists just to do something for us. The world and our natural way of understanding things finds use for someone like that. To Philemon, Onesimus, by the world's standards, was useful to him when he was there as a slave. Once he ran away, he was of no no use to him. 
But Paul takes this and turns this around and says, he's actually gonna come back to you, but not as a slave, not to do stuff for you. And he was useless to you before. There was no value in you owning him and you having him to serve your needs in that power kind of dynamic that you had with him before. He was useless. Now, he's useful to you. And this word choice that Paul makes of useless um, is intentional. It's consistent across translations. This way of seeing a slave is useful. A friend who owes you something, who owes you nothing, I'm sorry, is nice, but not particularly useful and certainly not useful in the way that someone over whom you exercise this kind of control to do stuff for you is. Paul is redefining the way that Philemon and the church and the church see value in the world. A slave is useless to you. There's no value in that. Someone who knows Jesus and who you receive as a brother is now useful because we're not focused, you're not focused anymore on using people for your own purpose. The cross changes that. Your focus is now on God using all of us alongside one another for his purposes. That's where real usefulness comes in. And he even says in verses 15 and 16, maybe it's for the best that he was gone for a while. You're getting him back now for good and not just as a slave, but as a brother, as a real brother. And he was that to me and he'll be even more to you. Paul's saying, maybe God took him away from you so you'd be able to really understand the change that the cross makes here. And as much as I love him, he was never my slave. He's always just been my kid. Um, I think you'll find him even more of a treasure because he'll be the center of God continuing to change the way that you see. You'll have this constant reminder in your household that the, in the kingdom, there are no slaves of one another. There are just siblings. And after all, who wants a slave when you can have a brother or sister? I think is the essence of what Paul is saying here. So the message from Paul here to the church as a whole is that the cross not only changes our posture when we're facing God, but our posture as we face the world and one another. N.T. Wright describes this, I think, well here when he says this. As we are set free by that love from our own pride and fear, our own greed and arrogance, so we are free in our turn to be agents of reconciliation and hope, of healing and love. We are to be the prisoners who will write the letter. We are to reach out to God and the world and hold them together in our own very selves, our own actions, our own words, our own lives. And none of this is dreamed up or drummed up by our own effort or willpower. It follows from and flows from the fact that the cross of Jesus changed the world once and for all. Paul is speaking, is writing to Philemon and to his church and to our church and reminding us the cross changes everything and we are inundated on a daily basis by that old way of seeing the world and it is very difficult for us to, to remember that the world is different than what we see. We are discipled on a daily basis. You come in here once a week and you hear a sermon and whatever like spiritual conversation you have in comm group and whatever Bible study you might do on your own, 
But none of that is going to add up to just your everyday hours in a world that is regularly discipling you and telling you that, that this is the way things work. You're here for your own benefit. Or you're here to be nice to people so you feel good about yourself. Or you've got to pull up in yourself this kind of kindness that doesn't exist in you. We're discipled in the way of the world constantly, and Paul is telling us, remember that the cross changed all of that, and let that change the way you live. We no longer do what Paul later describes to the church in Corinth as seeing people from a human point of view. We have to, by the cross, stop seeing people from a natural human point of view. Instead, our eyes become new creation. We see differently. Our old way of seeing dies. A new way comes. And this is the new way. Because we've been reconciled, we have a new purpose. We don't live for ourselves, but for the reconciliation of the world. That's our mission. That's why we're alive. So we don't own slaves. But the core corrective and directive here is for us to no one exists to just benefit me. No one is beneath me. No one exists just to benefit you. No one is beneath you. And the loudest Christian-labeled voices that we hear in the culture are still angry. They're still defiant. They're still clinging to my rights or our rights and trying to drum up this kind of war that is counter to the message of the cross. The cross is about reconciliation. The cross is about giving my life away and inviting other people in to that same life. And if you've been rescued by Jesus, you can no longer be indifferent to those who are in need of all kinds of rescue. Your life here and now has a clear purpose to respond to the cross in gratitude to God and in love and service to others. That's it. The cross compels us to worship and to live with this kind of mission. As for, just like it was true for Philemon, for us to believe well or behave well, which Paul acknowledges Philemon is doing, for us to be faithful members of a gathering church, which Philemon was clearly doing, is not the end of who we're called to be. That's not, we, we don't get our behavior modified, become decent people, and show up to church on a somewhat regular basis and assume that God is done making us into who he wants us to be. That's not all there is to it. If there was, there would be no need for this letter. There's more to it. It's time to look around at the parts of our lives that still conform to the world's way of seeing and allow Jesus to remake them. That's Paul's message here. If we're giving God that kind of freedom in our lives, he is going to change the way that we see. And he's going to change what we do. And then our faith will, as Paul said here, keep showing up in the good things we do and people will recognize Christ in all of that. Let's pray. Father, would you give us two things tonight? Would you give us the freedom and the security of knowing that we're yours, that we can't um, do anything to lose that security and that we can't do anything to earn it and that these feelings we feel as we kind of drift in and out of the depth of our faith or the depth of our devotion aren't what define who you are or who we are to you. So give us 
just this deep, deep security and faith that you have made us what we are and that we are yours. And also give us a clarity of vision that you have made us yours for a purpose, that you are up to something in the world, that by the cross you are breaking every chain, that you are changing the way that the world works so that you can make it clear to everybody who you are and who they are in you. And so as we've been reconciled, you're inviting us, you're empowering us to participate in that reconciliation. And our life is not for anything else. Our life is not to gather what we can and make the best of it in the years that we have. Our life is to join you in the redemption of your creation. So give us eyes to see that, Lord, and the faith in our security in you to not fear it, to know that our help is on the way, however daunting or hard that seems, however it feels like we might have to give up something that we like and that we cling to or that that's comfortable for us, and that the real power and the real joy is coming from you as we live as yours on your mission. And we pray that in the name of Jesus, whose name is the power for our salvation and for our mission. Amen.